put more into the study, and so um, Abel will expand real long, so it will only be two hours. And I'm just kidding. But I do have, I got 59 slides, so I need to try to get those done in about 45 seconds per slide. Um, but we're talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Um, Amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, those are the three major views. Uh, we read uh, Revelation 19 earlier today, and um, definitely a chapter that's not the one that, that you want on your maybe devotional card that you get in the mail or what. Pretty gruesome stuff with Jesus coming back to destroy his enemies as well as the enemies um, of his people Israel. Um, now go ahead and turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 20. We'll have it on the screen as well, but something special about opening the Bible um, in book form. Amen. And so Revelation 19 is the return of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ um, comes back. And so all three of these views um, believe that Jesus is going to come back at some point, but there are some major differences, and the main differences in upcoming in Revelation chapter 20. And so we'll read there. So Revelation 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loose a little season. And I saw thrones, and they um, sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they live and reign with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, and such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years, and when a thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loose out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. Now that's not the time of Armageddon. Um, that happens um, with Jesus first returning, and then this is something that's more towards the end of the thousand-year reign, depending on what perspective you hold to, all-mill, pre-mill, or post-mill. And so just a quick, brief introduction. There are, again, three primary eschatological views. That means the last things, the end times, with regards to the second coming of Christ and the millennial. Um, all-mill teaches that there is no future um, millennial reign of Christ. Post-mill teaches that Christ returns after the millennium, and that has a different view than the pre-mill would have in their view. Pre-mill would have the view that Christ returns before the millennial. I'm going to keep getting that, that word messed up. I was saying it so many times. And we're going to get into detailed definitions of this. But um, the differences are largely a matter of how Bible prophecy is interpreted. Uh, and so there's, here's another um, scholarly word, hermeneutics. And um, this is basically the art of finding the meaning of an author's words and phrases and explaining it to others. Um, what, what is the Bible and the writers intending to say? And so some hold to a view of a literal hermeneutic, and that is where they would understand what the Bible is literally written. And you know what? Some people accept most of the Bible is literally written, but with Bible prophecy, sometimes 
they will have an allegorical hermeneutic, which is they, they see a prophecy, and then they apply it as an allegory, or they give it a spiritual meaning, not necessarily how the writer may have intended. And so sometimes they will use the, um, how sometimes the New Testament will show something in fulfillment, and sometimes the New Testament gives an application of an Old Testament prophecy. Um, for example, where it ta talks about my um, son will not be left in Egypt. When the writer in the Old Testament intentionally was writing it, it was speaking about Israel and one of the captivities and, and, and how, how, how Israel would be free. While the New Testament does give an application of that, it had already been fulfilled, but gives another application of it, um, of Jesus Christ, um, where my son would not be left um, in Egypt, or I called my son out of Egypt. Now, at the time, the interpretation was speaking about Israel, but there was a twofold fulfillment of the prophecy by that application. So sometimes some will see that kind of example, so they'll see any kind of Bible prophecy just about as an allegory instead of a literal fulfillment. So with amillennialism, again, that means they believe there is no future millennium. I should say mill for short, huh? But um, that is not, and they, they teach that it's not a literal thousand years, but it's rather figurative, figurative language, meaning a long time. And Revelation 21 to 6, they'll say, describes the present church age, that we are in the millennium right now. So it's not that there's going to be one day a future reign of Christ, but that Christ is reigning right now. Um, this is an age in which Satan's influence over the nations has been greatly reduced as he is currently bound um, so that the gospel should be preached with free course. Okay, and as I'm going through this, understand, okay, so, some of this, what I'm saying, I'm not saying this is what the Bible is teaching. I'm giving you the case that they're making. Um, sometimes I'll be clear about this, what the Bible is teaching. But like right now, I'm just trying to give a definition of what they would um, believe. And so Amil would believe that Satan is currently bound and that Jesus, rather than a literal reign on earth, Jesus is currently in heaven um, ruling. And so that, that Jesus isn't going to come to the earth to rule, but that he's in heaven currently ruling. Those who are said to be reigning with Christ for the figurative thousand years are Christians who have died and are already currently reigning with Christ in heaven. At the end of the church age, Christ returns to resurrect both the believers and the unbelievers, and we enter the eternal state. And so Amil would believe in one resurrection, um, as well as post-mill, where um, pre-mill um, would believe in two resurrections, and we'll get to that later. Here's kind of a graphic to kind of explain it a little bit. So they would believe that there is no future reign of Christ, but rather right now, Revelation 21-6, is now. That, that, that's what's going on. That's the church age. And then Christ returns, doesn't set up a kingdom on earth, but resurrects the believers and unbelievers, judgment, new heaven, new earth, and we're in the eternal state. And so then the case um, for it, some of more of their arguments, would be as only one passage teaches a 1,000-year rule of Christ, and it's an obscure passage that is not easily understood if taken literally. Other verses speak of the kingdom as being forever instead of a 1,000 years. Um, to say the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants to Israel regarding the land promises and throne promises to Israel were conditional. Um, upon their obedience. Since Israel was disobedient and unbelieving, 
there will be no future fulfillment for Israel. And, then, uh, and so with this comes replacement theology. A lot of times, like, different doctrines are interwoven together. And replacement theology is the thought that the church replaces Israel on a permanent basis. They hold that the unfulfilled Old Testament predictions made to Israel are fulfilled spiritually in the New Testament church. Um, R.C. Sproul Jr., who would be all-mill and believe in replacement theology, um, says, we believe that the church is essentially Israel. We believe that the answer to, what about the Jews? The answer is, here we are. So he says, we are the Jews. We are the promise, um, the chosen um, people. Um, Hank Hennergraf, who's also all-mill, um, from the Bible Answer Man on the radio, he holds the replacement doctrine. He called Tim LaHaye, who's a premillennialist, a racist and a blasphemer because he speaks of Israel as the chosen people of God. And John Piper, he is not all-mill. He holds a form of premill, classic premill, um, but he does adopt replacement theology that has his roots in all-mill theology. And, um, and that kind of led him to blame Israel for the terrorism by Islam um, today. And then he said also that the only true spiritual Israel, the church, will inherit Abraham's promise, which includes the land of Israel. So that, that promise given to Israel in the Old Testament it's not really going to be given to national Israel, but that the church replaces Israel and will get the promised land. And that's why, like the Roman Catholic Church, many times with the Crusades, they would go in and want to take the Holy Land. They believe in all-mill theology, and so they're like, that's our land. That's given to us. Um, we replace Israel. Israel does not, or Jews do not belong in here. And so part of the verse that they use for replacement theology is Matthew 21, 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, the church, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And so that's how they would understand that verse. Okay, the Jewish people, they had their chance. They rejected it. So it's given to the Gentile church. Uh, rather than seeing Christ ruling in the church, in a literal, physical way, and instead of the church obtaining the promised land of Israel, most, particularly Protestant reformers, um, the Catholics, they went in and wanted to take the land. And now, again, some of that was also part of self-defense um, of the wars from Islam as well. Um, but there were times when they were the aggressor as well. But um, a lot of Amil don't believe that they're going to take the land literally, physically, but they view it as a spiritual and symbolic context. Uh, and, and so there's a little bit of variance. So with the land, some, some believe, like John Piper, that one day, okay, it'll be their, their land. And, and then, but most believe it'll be fulfilled with the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. The throne of David, um, the promise that the Messiah would come from the throne of David, that they would believe Christ is symbolically seated on the throne of David currently in heaven. So that what God was promising David was not a literal reign, future reign on earth, but that the Messiah would be reign in heaven. Amillennialism has been the most widely held view for much of church history, um, including both Roman um, Catholicism and most of the Protestant reformers of the 16th century. And um, all millennialism, or the idea, uh, an argument they make against the pre-mill view, would be, because with pre-millennialism would have the view that okay, Jesus would be um, coming back, 
okay, that he would be um, regathering Israel, um, and that Israel would recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, that during the tribulation period, that there were the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the two prophets, the two witnesses, and so they would be witnessing to the Jews. Jesus comes back and destroys um, most of the enemies, and then Israel would enter the millennial reign. With Jesus coming back would be the saints of believers that have already died. And so then Jesus would be ruling and reigning with the saints, Old and New Testament, and that they would be ruling and reigning in Christ in their glorified body. But from the Jewish people and some of the others that entered the millennial reign that did not die, they would reproduce, they would have children during the thousand-year reign in the pre-mill view. And so you would have people that were in their glorified body and people that were in their still corrupt body that decays and ages. And so the Amil argues against that and says the idea of glorified believers in their immortal bodies and sinners living on earth together is considered too ridiculous to accept. That it just doesn't seem like something um, to comprehend. And if Christ in glory, if Christ comes in glory to reign on earth, how could people continue to sin and remain unbelievers? If Jesus comes, he's in Jerusalem, he is ruling the world, how can there still be unbelievers? How would there not be more of a fear of God where people would recognize, wow, this indeed is the Messiah. We see him with our eyes. Um, the premillennialist view that Ezekiel 43 to 46, Isaiah 56, Zechariah 14, Jeremiah 33, speaking of a future millennium, it talks about a new temple being built, um, larger than any temple that's been built before. And it reinstates the animal sacrifices. And so the all-mill view would hold that's contrary to the scriptures that teach animal sacrifices are done away with in Christ. So why would there now all of a sudden be, we're doing the animal sacrifices again? And, and based on Hebrews 10, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers there too perfect. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all, and every priest stand of day we minister in and offer in oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And so they would be saying, why would we be doing animal sacrifices again? When Jesus fulfilled that, that he was the final fulfillment of being the one that would be the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. Amillennialism was the dominant view um, in, we're going to look in history, by about the 4th to 5th century, and I cut so much out of here, we would have been here forever, it would be a multiple week thing if I kept all of the history in, so this is going to be a very condensed version, um, but it really became new dominate around the 4th to 5th century. A big part of that stemmed from a, a hatred toward Jews, um, which kind of served as the seeds of replacement theology, now, that does not mean that everybody that holds to replacement theology today is anti-Jew. They simply believe that, okay, where the Gentiles are drafted in and the Jews could be part of the church um, as well. Um, but they do believe that the church still has replaced Israel as far as regarding the promises that God had given. But early on, um, as it started to really take root, it was because of a hatred toward Jews. Part of it was they viewed the Jewish people as being responsible for the death of Jesus Christ and not really um, understanding it. You know what? Jesus laid his life down willingly. You know, if he didn't die, you know, we wouldn't have um, been able to have our sins washed away. And Rome, Gentile believers were just as much involved. But second century, Jews... Um, uh, um, Origen, Bishop of Alexandria, um, Egypt, 
He says, Jews will not return to their former situation, for they have committed the most abominable of crimes in forming the conspiracy against the Savior of the human race. Third century, Cyprian, Bishop of Carvrich, demanded that all Jews be expelled um, from his church in the district at the point of the sword. Um, fourth century, um, John Christum, the Jews are the most worthless of all men. Christians may never seize vengeance, and the Jew must live in servitude forever. God always hated the Jews. It is incumbent upon all Christians to hate the Jews. Fifth century, um, Jerome, um, who um, was involved with the um, Latin Vulgate, um, says Jews are congenital liars who lure Christians to heresy, therefore they should be punished until they confess. And Augustine was really the one that was most instrumental in the development of amillennialism being accepted in the churches at large. Before Augustine, amillennialism was associated with the heresies produced by the allegorizing and spiritualizing school of theology at Alexandria, which not only opposed premillennialism, but subverted any literal exegesis of Scripture, whatever, uh, whatsoever. And so, um, before, okay, before Origen and um, Clement of Alexandria and some of those theologians they were really looked down upon as heretics. Today now, people reverence them and look to them as great church fathers of the faith. But back in the time, they were viewed as heretics. That they did not accept Bible prophecy as literal. They spiritualized it. And not just Bible prophecy, but in all kinds of areas, they would spiritualize the meaning instead of accepting it at face value. Through Origen and the Alexandrian School of Theology, it's also where we get the manuscripts that modern versions are based off of. The same group that spiritualize and allegorize um, things. But with Augustine, he was the first theologian of influence of his day who adopted amillennialism. Okay, before Origen, they taught it, but it wasn't really accepted. But once Augustine accepted it, and before, he was pre-mill. But he, he, he changed. Um, he, his viewpoint became the prevailing doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, and therefore was the adopted uh, view of most of the Protestant reformers who came out of the Catholic Church. He Augustine even predicted that Christ would return in 650 A.D., However, he qualified his state setting. In vain, therefore, do we try to reckon the remainder of the world's years. Some say that it shall last 400, some 500, some 1,000 years after the ascension. Everyone has his view. If it were vain, they try to show on that grounds. So he, he gave some date setting, but he said that's only if some of these calculations are going to be right. Well, 650 A.D. came, people were waiting to see Jesus return. They didn't return, and so people really started to panic at 1,000 A.D. And so I don't know why it wouldn't be 1,033 or um, A.D. or whatever, but they were starting to wonder, like, okay, is Jesus going to return? And then that didn't um, happen either. But his reason for rejecting a literal view of a 1,000-year kingdom is reduced for the main reason that some at the time had talked about the millennium simply as carnal enjoyment. That, that, that it would just be about partying, they'd be drinking their wine, um, that they would be rich in goods, that they just would be all well to do. And Augustine rejected that kind of mentality, so he changed his view and no longer believed pre-mill, but changed to a all-mill. He said, we were once of the same opinion ourselves, but seeing the avouchers here have affirmed that the saints after this resurrection shall do nothing but revel in fleshly banquets, where the chair shall exceed both modesty and measure, this is gross and fit for none but carnal men to believe. But they that are really and truly spiritual do call those of the opinion, show us. 
And um, that's a, more of an older term that would be used to describe premillennialism. And so he also came to the conclusion that the first resurrection, since Revelation 20 speaks of two resurrections, he spiritualized the first resurrection. Um, and he said that's the spiritual birth of believers. So when someone becomes born again, that's the first resurrection. Um, and so then the second resurrection, he would say, would be a literal. And then I'm fast-forwarding, skipping a lot of history. 16th century, Martin Luther, founder of the Protestant Reformation, he published his pamphlet entitled Concerning the Jews and Their Lies, in which he urged that synagogues be burned down, Jewish homes be destroyed, all prayer books and Talmuds be burned because of the lies and blasphemy they contain, and that the rabbis be forbidden to teach under penalty of death, all Jewish property be taken and distributed among Christians, and any Jew heard mentioning the name of God be turned over to the authorities. And um, Adolf Hitler, you know, he used a lot of what some of the Catholic Church and even of the, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther to really talk about how evil the Jewish people um, were. John Calvin. Um, he said, not long after arose the millenarians, talking about those that were pre-mill, who limited the reign of Christ to a thousand years. Their fiction is too childish to require or deserve refutation. Nor does the revelation which they quote in favor of their heir afford them any support. Those who assign the children of God a thousand years to enjoy the inheritance of the future life, little think and dishonor they cast on Christ and his kingdom. Um, that's from his um, Institutes of Christian Religion. And so he said, you know what, those Christians that believe in the pre-mill view, um, they're limiting the eternal state basically to a thousand um, years. And then the, that basically everything would end, which wouldn't be accurately which pre-mill would believe. But there are theologians, I'm not going to go into the details of all of these, um, but some of you may um, know some of these, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, John Murray, some pretty popular um, theologians. They hold to an all-mill view, and um, most Roman Catholics do, most Reformed groups. Any questions on all-mill theology? You guys still with me? All right, post-millennialism defined. So this views that the millennium is a future event, that it is also not a literal thousand years. It's possible it would be post-mill and still believe in a thousand years, but most do, do not. Um, but they say it's figurative language. And they're very optimistic about the power of the gospel to change lives. That um, the, the gospel going forth um, would um, really bring revival and, and that the world is becoming a better and better place, um, and that the progress of the gospel, the growth of the church, will increase so that a larger proportion of the world's population will become Christians, and eventually that will enter into the millennial reign, a utopian society. But Jesus won't be ruling on the earth. He'll be ruling in heaven, and the church will be ruling on the earth. And that's where they'll usually strongly encourage Christians to be involved in politics and um, really popular with, um, I'll, I'll get to it in a little bit, I don't want to get ahead of me. So, um, after many years of the triumphant reign of the church, Jesus will then return and there will be the resurrection of the just, unjust, and enter the eternal state. And so it's the graphic, so present age, church age, and then here, this is still the church age. Um, and that the world will become better, the gospel will increase, advance, a gradual Christianization of the world, and so this would be the millennial reign. Jesus is in heaven, though, and the church is reigning on earth. And this is just like massive revival that most of the world will become Christian. And so they argue that the Great Commission leads us to expect to go forth in power and eventually result in mostly Christian world. And that he said to teach all nations, baptizing them. Um, and so he said, so they take this verse to see, okay, there's going to be ultimate revival. 
the world is going to be evangelized. People from all nations and ethnicities will be saved. Christ reigns over the earth from heaven. Psalm 47, 2, they quote, For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. So talking about God's in heaven, but he's king over all the earth. Jesus' parable of the mustard seed um, foretells the continual advance of Christianity in the world. And they'll say there is evidence that the world conditions through Christian teaching are improving morally, socially, and spiritually in the world. In the Bible, they say thousand is sometimes used symbolically. Um, be mindful always of the covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Psalm 50:10. for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. And so they'll use these verses to say the thousand years in Revelation 20 does not need to be taken literally. Postmillennialism tends to increase in times when the church is experiencing great revival. The great, great awakenings was when it was the most popular um, and when there appears to be an absence of war. And um, this view became popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but fell out of favor after the outbreak of World War I and World War II. Because it hit them, wow, the world's not becoming a better place. It's, it's getting worse. Um, men have dreamed for many centuries of a golden age um, in which the human race will be free from war, sickness, and even death. And men have tried to achieve this goal and failed. Today, if you hold to it, it started to get a little bit more popular shortly after the wars, um, particularly in Christian Reconstructionist groups as an outgrowth of the conservative Presbyterian movement. And um, the popular scholar for that would be R.J. Rushdoony um, that re really advocated, you know what, we need to get involved in the government, um, which those are good things. You know what, Christians should be you know, involved. not saying every Christian's um, going to be a politician, but it's great when the righteous um, rule. And so he was um, advocating for everything in the Old Testament laws um, to be um, put, like for the death penalty, that it would be like if someone was a homosexual, they'd be stoned to death. Um, the one exception he did not teach, though, was adultery. He didn't teach being stoned for adultery because he did get divorced, he did get remarried. So he did leave that one. Um, out. Um, Gary North is also a popular reconstructionist. Douglas Wilson is a popular one today. But a lot of these guys during the Great Awakenings hold a post-mill um, theology. So a lot of these are um, good guys. And um, there will be, so that's post-millennialism. Any questions about that? Most of you forget it all afterwards anyways, huh? Um, Premillennialism defined. And so they hold that there will be a future millennium. This millennium will be a literal thousand years. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Jesus will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, Israel, and rule the world for a thousand years. Nations will come before Jesus to worship him. If an offering sacrifices is a memorial of what Christ did. And Satan will be released for a short season and lead a final rebellion against Christ. God will um, cast um, Satan into the lake of fire forever. Um, and here we see that the devil which deceived him was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so the first part of Revelation 20, um, verse 1 to 6 or 1 to 8, um, they would accept it is a literal um, um, interpretation. And so basically a chart to define it, okay, that we'd be in the church age, and then there'd be the seven-year tribulation period. Um, I'm going to come back to this. And then the second coming of Christ where Jesus comes on earth and, and he sets his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, rules with a rod of iron, and there'll be a thousand years. Satan will be bound during this time. And then at the end of a thousand years, Satan will be released to deceive the nations one more time. And then Jesus will destroy the last enemy, which is death. And then we'll enter the eternal state. Um, heaven and earth will pass away, and a new heaven and a new earth will um, become. 
And okay, so now with premillennialism, there's actually different viewpoints that still fit in a pre-mill context. Okay? Some would hold that, okay, the rapture would happen at the seven-year tribulation um, of Earth called Daniel's 70th week. Um, others would view the raptures happen midway in the tribulation. So when the great tribulation starts, the second three and a half years, others have a pre-wrath theory, which is kind of like somewhere before, um, just before the major part of the wrath of God comes down. And then there's post-trib view, um, which would be like um, John Piper's view. He'd be pre-mill, he'd be post-trib, that the rapture happens as Jesus returns. And so all of those are included in premillennialism. It's just there's, then there's, there's what's called classic pre-mill and dispensational pre-mill. We're not even getting into um, that today. I was planning on getting into that next week. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to or not because I'll be taking a lot more studying, but in the future we'll get into that. But so basically, a pre-mill view would be there's the church age, there's the tribulation period, disregard when the rapture is, but then there'll be a time when Jesus um, comes back. And some, there's also another view, there's pan-trib, that we'll see how it all pans out. And, and so, we'll see that. Um, with premillennialism, the case, say six times in this chapter alone, the kingdom period is specified as a thousand years. So it should be taken literally. That if it was to be symbolic, maybe it would have only been mentioned once. That a thousand years to mean a long period of time. But it specifically mentions Six times, that is a thousand years. And in the Bible, there is more prophecy concerning the millennium than any other period of time. The pre-mill view of the millennium is necessary for all the Old Testament predictions of a messianic age to be fulfilled literally. Now, in all these other passages, the timeline, a thousand years, isn't mentioned, but the conditions, what it's going to be like during this reign, are mentioned um, over and over throughout the Old Testament. And um, it keeps a literal understanding of the unconditional seed and land promise to Abraham and his descendants, where Amel Postmill views it as a conditional, and what they usually point to is a Mosaic covenant, which was conditional and somewhat related, but what we end up seeing. Um, in the Bible, that the covenant given to Abraham and his descendants, especially looking at Hebrews 6, that it is sworn with an oath and that God would not disannul it, that disregardless of Israel's obedience or disobedience, God is going to keep his covenant. The unconditional Davidic covenant, that his seed would reign in the latter days and eventually through the Messiah. Um, you can write these scriptures down, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, and Psalm 89, 30 to 37. And the psalm particularly talking about that, even if they rebel, that God was going to keep his covenant. Um, another scripture related um, in Hosea, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice. So basically that Israel would no longer have a government. And this is after the captivity, or initial captivities, but wouldn't have a government, wouldn't have a religious system as far as having the animal sacrifices. And to this day, they do not have animal sacrifices. But in afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And there with the name David, it would be accepted as an allegorical form that David's not going to be returning, but that Jesus is called the branch of David and that he's called David here. Luke 1.32 says, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And so that's where Amil would take, okay, it says forever. It doesn't say a thousand years. But a pre-mill view would take is 
Well, there's the initial thousand years, but after that thousand years, it is ushered in to the eternal um, state. Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. It is consistent with the promise in Romans, Romans 11 that Israel will be restored. Romans 11.26 says, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall return away ungodliness from Jacob. And so here we see a, a, a great revival of Israel of getting saved in the end. One scripture I forgot to mention that Amil and Postmill would use to support is in Galatians. It talks about the church, and then it says the Israel of God. And then also in Romans, when it talks about when Paul says that some are Jews outwardly, but they're not one inwardly. Um, that they've rejected the Messiah so that they're not true ch um, um, children um, of Israel. The pre-mill view would understand that as Galatians, it was written to the Jewish people there, and that Paul was basically saying, if you're going to be true to your Jewish heretics, then you're going to be part of the church, you're going to be saved, born again, and you'll be the Israel of God. That you'll be, it'd be like a... An American maybe would say, okay, um, you can't be pro-choice and be a true American. Now, you know, a true American stands for life. Well, technically, they may still be an American citizen. But saying to be faithful to the ideals of being an American. And so Paul talked about with Israel. To really, truly be of Abraham's seed of the promise, you would be a believer. And stuff, But here we do see that, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come one out of Zion to deliver and turn away ungodliness from Jacob. If replacement theology was true, that the church became Israel, then if the church is the newer spiritual Israel, how could Israel in the end times become saved? Okay, we're, we're already saved, so why would we need to get saved again then? If we are already. So in that sense, it wouldn't really make sense. But the church, by definition, is the called out assembly of saved people. Paul explains God's promises are irrevocable. That um, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And this is where it's talking about. God is talking about, um, or Paul's talking about his relationship with Israel. The Old Testament ends with Israel expecting a messianic kingdom. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And so we see the first half, okay, we see that fulfilled with John the Baptist preparing the way, but then we see another future that he'd be coming to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, um, but who may abide the day of his coming, and then later it talks about, Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord. And, and so that the sacrifices would be back. Jesus promises that he and his apostles would reign on thrones in Israel. So um, you write that verse down. I didn't um, put that in here. But Jesus told the apostles they would reign with him in, on thrones in Israel. It is supported by Jesus' response to the disciples um, that question about the restoring of the kingdom of Israel. Um, when, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Jesus had already rose again. And so now they're asking him, so it's this now. Okay, you died, you're risen again. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? And he didn't say, no, that's a spiritual, that's an allegory. He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father have put in his own power. And then he told them to be witnesses. Um, and so, pre-mill would view, okay, the millennium is a thousand years. The new heaven and new earth, there would be no end. Um, in the millennium, Revelation 12, 5, we see Jesus will be ruling with a rod of iron. That's necessary because there's still sinners living on the earth. 
And so evil will still be present, but greatly reduced. Um, Isaiah 65, 20 shows a time where in the millennium, death still does occur. It's not as rampant. There's a lot of peace. Um, um, diseases um, are trampled upon. Like basically, things are a paradise, but things aren't absolutely perfect. Isaiah 65, 20 says, There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that have not filled his days. For the child shall die in hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. And so basically the time would be like pre-Noah times, when people would live a long time. People would live up to 600 years. Um, if you saw living in 900 something, which is almost a thousand years. And so a child, like there wouldn't be a child dying just after birth, but that one would still be considered a child when they're a hundred years old. But that there still would be sin and the sinner would be punished. Well, in the new heaven and new earth, there is no more death. There is no more pain. And so that's why there's a distinction between the millennium and then the new heaven and the new earth. And you see the millennium in Revelation 20. The new heaven and new earth in 21 and 22. And so the final judgment hasn't occurred yet in the millennial reign. That's at the end. Um, there'll be the saved and unsaved during the millennial reign. During the new heaven and new earth, it'll be saved only. And then Satan is not yet judged, but he will be judged when there's a new heaven and new earth. All mill, post mill, and pre mill, all except a little fulfillment of the messianic events foretold by the prophets of Christ in the sense of, um, uh, of these items here. They all accept this literal. Virgin birth, born in Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, perform miracles, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, dying for our sins, rising from the dead. All three of these views accept those literally, that these really happen. So why do Amil and Postmil change their method of interpretation from literal to just symbolic and a spiritualized allegory when it relates to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom? I don't know the answer to that, that question. But they, they changed it. They were believed the other prophecies literal, but not this prophecy literal. On mill and post mill, only have one resurrection. Pre mill accepts that there are two resurrections, um, spoken of in Revelation 20. That there's the resurrection of the just before the millennium, but the rest of the dead live not again till the end, the Bible says. And then that was the loss appeared before the great white throne, throne of um, God. Um, resurrection, so there's the resurrection of saints before millennium and the resurrection of the lost after the millennium. Remember, Augustine spiritualized the first one and said that's when someone's saved or born again. But the thing is, the resurrection isn't talking about, it's talking about people that are actually literally dead. All mill and post mill was not present in the earliest era of the church. It developed first as an opposition to pre-mill literalism by the Alexandrian school of theology, so about in the 200s. Um, by origin, and then eventually evolve into a formal system. And again, it dominated the churches when the theologian Augustine abandoned pre-mill for an amill view. Amillennials are wrong about Satan currently being bound. Okay, the amill again views this, there's no future millennium, and Satan's bound right now. Well, if he's bound right now, he's on a super large chain. Because the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion. Walk of about, seeking whom he may devour. He's still walking around. So if he's bound, he has free roam. It's just a super long chain. Um, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Okay? Pre-mill view, during the millennium, Satan is going to be literally bound. He is not going to have influence on the world. Now, man still has sinful nature, and so we still see man struggling with sin, but we see a society that is very utopian in nature. Postmillennialists teach that the world is becoming a better place, about to usher in this era of the church ruling the world. What about 
Uh, um, the question then would be, what about all the persecuted and suffering Christians all around the world? Sometimes we think of it in an Americanized version. We have freedom, you know, gospel spreading. But they don't think about the places where Christianity is greatly um, persecuted. And we see that Jesus questions the disciples whether he will even find faith when he returns. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on earth? On earth. Jesus didn't say, whoa, there's going to be great revival. But shall he find faith? Bible says, enter at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth a new life. And few there be that find it. In his history, um, this was the primary view of early church leaders. Um, but it um, basically fell out of favor when really okay, Israel became no more in 70 A.D., and then again in 135 A.D. where they were really scattered. And so there was no more nation of Israel. And so that's what made it easy for churches to think, okay, how are all these prophecies about Israel really going to apply when there is no Israel? And so um, the most striking point is from the history of Christian church, the most striking point in the eschatology of Antonicene age is the prominent chillism. That's the pre-mill view. That is the belief of a visible reign of Christ in glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. It was indeed not the doctrine of the church embodied in any creed or form of devotion that there wasn't anything in the statement of faith that talked about it, but a widely current opinion of distinguished teachers, such as Barnabas, um, Papias, which was a disciple of John, um, along with Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, um, who, Irenaeus, who was close to Papias, who was a learner from the Apostle John, um, Tertullian, Methodius, and Lactanius. Lactanius said as he lived from 240 to 320 AD, the dead will rise again, not after a thousand years from their death, but that when again restored to life, they may reign with God a thousand years. Papias said that there will be a millennium after the resurrection of the dead when the kingdom of Christ will be set up in material form in, on this earth. And he learned from the Apostle John directly. So he understood what John wrote in Revelation 20, literally. And so close to John. Ephraim of Syria. This was found in um, a fragment found in 1948. And this is... Um, in particular, shows a pre-tribulational view where it was taught, um, thought that maybe John Darby, C.I. Schofield, that they invented the pre-trib rapture theory. But then they found this manuscript. and It says, Why therefore do we not reject every care of earthly actions and prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord Christ? All saints and the elect of the Lord are gathered together before the tribulation, which is about to come, and are taken to the Lord, in order that they may not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sins. And um, around the 5th century, again, Amil took root as part of a lack of faith regarding the nation of Israel, that there was no Israel, and also out of a hatred of Jews, and many churches felt they believed it. John Nelson Darby did popularize, he had a popular voice in the 1800s. Um, C.I. Schofield, his Bible, study Bible notes, it revived re interest in the pre-mill view, I believe that God will deal with Israel again, even though while he was alive, Israel still was not a nation. Jews were scattered throughout the world. The real reason for the revival of the popularity of premillennialism is found in the beginning of the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel itself. For almost 2,000 years, Israel was just a footnote in history. You know, they were no more. But 1948, the world saw a modern-day miracle. It's the dry bones of Ezekiel 37. And we don't have time to give you that, but read Ezekiel 37. And very clearly looks like 1948 was the beginning of the fulfillment of the dry bones 
um, being resurrected, that the nation, that the nation of Israel, they were scattered all around the world, and that God would bring them back. In 1948, they became a nation again. And you read throughout the Bible, talks about if you touch the apple of God's eye, you touch the people of Israel, that God will put a curse upon the people that curse Abraham's seed. And that in the Bible, we'll probably talk about the nature of the millennium um, in the future, but it talks about um, how in the tribulation period, that okay, God in his chastening of Israel will use the wicked to chasten Israel, but then in their wickedness of persecuting Israel, God will destroy the enemies of Israel. Premier theologians, Augustine in his early years, John Nelson Darby, C.I. Schofield, Lewis Berry Schaefer, Presbyterian, which usually they have an on-mill view. He was pre-mill. Charles Riley has good writings, very well balanced. James Montgomery Boyce, um, Dwight Pentecost, and Millard um, Erickson. Um, Willem Tyndale, he was burned at the stake by the Church of England. He had a pre-mill view. Um, the Anabaptists mostly had a pre-mill view, and most Baptists today have a pre-mill view. Um, some Reform have a pre-mill view, and various charismatic groups have a pre-mill view, and usually they're just trying to use it to market and to make a lot of money, and, and you also have some that have a pre-mill view but have heretical view. Um, um, John Hagee. Okay, he basically says that, okay, because Israel's the chosen people of God, they don't need to be evangelized. That the gospel comes from Israel, but not to Israel. That's heretical. The Jewish people do not go to heaven because they're Jews. They still need to be saved. They still need um, to receive Jesus as their Savior. What we see in the biblical timeline, that in the latter days, Israel will by large... Um, come and see their need. Answering objections. We're almost done right here. Um, earlier it was mentioned, if Christ comes to physically reign on earth, how could people sin and remain with unbelievers? Well, you know, Jesus was perfect when he came the first time, and Judas was with Christ regularly. He betrayed him. The Pharisees saw Jesus' miracles. Satan fell in the presence of God in heaven. The world continued to sin and be in disbelief after Jesus rose from the dead, walked around. He's in this glorified body. People still continue to sin. The Bible portrays sin and unbelievers during the millennium, so the Bible says that we should believe it. Okay, okay about animal sacrifices in the millennium cannot be taken literally because they were done away with in Christ. Um, you know, at first, you know, studying that out, I was like, yeah, why is that coming, coming, coming back? Um, but the purpose of the animal sacrifice during the millennial kingdom would be memorial in nature. Um, it won't be to wash away sins, and neither were the sacrifices in the Old Testament. It was a picture of things come, and just like the Lord's Supper to us today, okay, Jesus isn't crucified every time we take the Lord's Supper like the Catholic Church would teach. But he, Jesus died once and for all, but we do it as a memorial. And the covenant of animal sacrifices with Israel, the Bible says it was a covenant God had with Israel forever. It wasn't a covenant he had with the church, but it was a covenant with Israel. And we see in the millennial reign, they would be doing the sacrifices again, not as the shadow of things to come, but as a memorial of what has happened in the past of Jesus dying for us. Um, they say it does not make sense for resurrected, glorified bodies to live among humans, um, mortal humans. There's no reason immortals cannot mix together. The immortals will have glorified physical bodies and eat and drink, just as Jesus did after his resurrection. Jesus said, you know what, bring me meat. Okay? That, that, that um, a ghost does not, or a spirit does not eat. And he ate in front of them in this glorified body. And now they're not going to need to eat to avoid starving, but it'll simply be out of enjoyment. Um, Jesus was also sinless and lived for some 33 years with sinful people. So, you know, in the millennial reign, 
If you're saved and you're reigning with Christ, you know what? You can be an influence on those other people. Maybe if they're around you, those be like, man, I want to try to live more like them. They won't be able to do perfectly because they're still in their mortal body. So a summary. Ammonios hold that there will be no future literal thousand-year reign, but that we're currently, uh, that's currently going on in heaven right now that God is reigning. And it has the allegorical, spiritualized interpretation, same with post-mill. But they say that the church, by Christianizing the world, will usher in the, king, um, the millennial era, but not in the pre-mill sense of Christ being on earth, just that Christ would rule from heaven and the church would rule on earth. Pre-mill teach that Jesus will return in glory, set up his kingdom, and rule on earth for a thousand years, and that's with a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. Floyd Hamilton was the all-millennialist. He wrote in his book, Now we must frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. That was the kind of messianic kingdom that the Jews of the time of Christ were looking for on the basis of a literal interpretation of the Old Testament. So he didn't hold to a pre-mill view, but he said if we were to accept the Bible literally, that would be the view you would have. That's what people were looking forward to. That's why some of them rejected Christ. They were looking for the ruler. They weren't looking for the suffering servant. Lorraine Bonner, a post-millennialist, he says, generally agree that if the prophecies are taken literally, they do foretell a restoration of the nation of Israel in the land of Palestine with the Jews having a prominent place in that kingdom and ruling over the other nations. And so a post-mill said, if you take the Bible literally, you would be pre-mill. The golden rule of Bible interpreta interpretation used by pre-millennialists is... When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, therefore take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. And so those would, the rare occasions would be when there, it would be a metaphor, talking about the wings of God, um, and so the things that are poetical in nature, that okay, you understand those as metaphors. But other than that, to accept the Bible literally. Any questions? I'm done. Didn't go too much over. We've gone over this far before. But any questions? Did you? A lot to chew on. If you want any of these scriptures, um, I could get those for you too. Um, just some um, announcements. Uh, we're going to have our potluck shared meal um, right after this and have our outreach. And we're just going to be leaving tracks on doors so you don't got to be intimidated. Um, more we have, and we'll be able to get them out pretty quick. And then starting this Wednesday, we're starting a new children's program on the second and fourth Wednesdays. This one's on the third Wednesday because we of the snow last week. Um, we pushed it off to this week, so it'll be the third and fourth week this month, but usually the second and fourth week. And, and so um, what we're wanting to do with that is get different people involved. Okay, we're going to have an organized structure. We'll have somebody that's going to be doing the songs um, and, and doing some things, but we'd like to teach the kids different life skills. Um, one week it could be like teaching people how to, build things out of wood. And then we would have a biblical, le a Bible lesson to go related to that. Um, another time it will be teaching the kids how to bake, uh, um, survival skills, um, archery. And so there will be all kinds of different events, different activities we'll do. And we want different people from our church, you guys, to participate in that. And, uh, and so you let me know some maybe areas you would be able to help in and teach the children. And you could either do the Bible lesson related it to, as well, or we could um, have um, the teacher um, that's leading it um, do the lesson. Um, but some of you, like, say you're teaching on building a house. You know, you talk about building on, um, on a rock instead of building on the sand. 
And so we're going to be using biblical truths to illustrate life skills we're going to be teaching um, them. And so that will be this Wednesday and next Wednesday. The first two are going to be teaching kids how to share their faith. How do you evangelize? Okay, you go to school. Um, how to share your faith there. And, um, and the next one's in March. One of them's going to be teaching the kids how to build a birdhouse. And another one will be about baking. And we don't have the other particulars all scheduled yet. Um, Quinn and I and then Alan and I and every time we made a whole list down of a bunch of different ideas. But we really need ideas from you as well. And you guys know areas that you could help in for that. And so basically the age range is going to be from first to sixth grade. But if the parents are here, hey, if they're younger, if they're older, um, it doesn't, ma doesn't matter. It's just kind of more of how we're going to advertise to the public. Because we don't want to say like a ninth grader coming and then they're like, what? This is with first graders and stuff. So we want to kind of avoid that. But our team's here. I think they'll have fun. They'll be have fun helping out with it. And then if you have kids younger, five years old, four years old, that's fine as long as you're here um, with them. Um, next week, um, we will be um, having um, a message based on marriage. That's why I rushed through this instead of making this to be tw two times or three times. But um, it will be a message uh, uh, related to marriage with a little bit of humor in there. And next week will also be the Bible Kid Venture. And so you guys, kids, ready for that? And starting next month, March, we're going to be moving that to two times a month. And now, understand, parents, that's optional. You know, you prefer to keep your children here. No shame in doing that at all. Um, it's just this kind of an outreach to, you know what, many times we have parents come. They're not used to their children sitting, wiggling. I'm not distracted, but they're distracted. And so, you know, the Bible does talk about how there are many times where it talks about the men, women, and children gathered together. There's others that say the men, women, and the children with understanding. That there could be a time where maybe the children don't have quite as much of understanding. And so we'll have this um, kid venture two times. And it, both for the Wednesday and the Sunday thing, just to keep it simple, we're going to most of the time have it be the second and fourth. So it'll be the second and fourth Sunday and the second and fourth Wednesday. At first, I was looking at doing one, the first and third, but then I saw when it goes to the next month, it changes. And so it would be the same week either way. So sometimes the kids' program, it'll be Sunday and Wednesday. Other times, it'll be Sunday, and then the next week, it will be on Wednesday. And also next week um, at 6 o'clock will be the ladies' coffee break. And so um, um, it'll be at Melinda's house. We'll have her address and everything next week. And so just be get together. Sister Allison is going to be giving the Bible lesson for the ladies. And my wife's really looking forward to that. And um, just be a good time of fellowship and for the ladies to really get connected. Let's go ahead and pray for the food and get eaten. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for today. And just pray, Lord, that you bless the food. And um, are going out today, um, that, Lord, that you will um, bring forth fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.